Hello, everyone. I'm Ayush, your host. And today we have with us Zane. He started his journey as an entrepreneur when he was 14. He went through that Silicon Valley dream of building a large company. Yeah, I'm excited to learn a bunch more from Zane. And uh, Zane, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me on. Excited to have a good chat. For sure. Would love to get started with what made you get started at 14 and what did you do? I was a restless kid. And I was always getting into trouble. So computers were a way for me to stay out of trouble. Initially, obviously that meant gaming. But once I understood that you can build websites, it was um, just remarkable to be able to express myself and create something. So I started building websites and um, my voice broke quite early. So I was uh, able to pick up the yellow pages and start calling up companies and convincing them that they need a website. And I'd say, Hey, I can get you a website. You've heard about this com rush. It's important you have a digital presence. And most of the time, uh, they'd want to meet. And I, of course I would do everything I can not to meet, uh, <laughs> just try to keep it to phone calls and emails. Uh, and then eventually as I started making money doing that, I started building my own websites. And that's when I would say I started my first venture, you know, at around 14, because these were my own owned and operated properties. Yeah. That's awesome. What, what's the first thing you built? Like, do you have any memory? The first thing I built, I was obsessed with martial arts. And so I built uh, a Bruce Lee website. And then as I continued to expand nice. that, it became a website, no longer exists, but it was allfight.com. And it was like a mixed martial arts resource. It was a community discussion board. Sort of now what happens a lot on Reddit and Showdog and other uh, MMA communities, this was like the thing back then. I then tried to build a uh, computer game, uh, like a Street Fighter for the more modern era. Oh, wow. that, 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 that was very difficult. Uh, and the, the developer I partnered with just disappeared one day. So I was heartbroken about that. The next more serious thing that started to bring in um, more money than my parents were making. So this was um, a, a website, it was called PC Clever. And it was basically teaching other people how to debug software issues. Um, it would have a complete resource on everything to do with computers. The biggest revenue generator for us was two things, reviews. So we would review mm -hmm. software, we would review, review gaming products. Sometimes we'd be given that for free and we'd make money from that and then we'd have ads. And the other thing was similar to that was tutorials. Um, mm -hmm. So we would do tutorials on how to use Microsoft Word, how to do a certain function in Excel. Uh, and I started hiring other people to build some of these tutorials for me. And that, that was making a decent, decent, you know, like a couple of hundred dollars a day sometimes. We live in a capitalistic society and money moves everything, right? But uh, how should a young founder look at money in general? The relationship with money has to be, in a sense, quite spiritual. If you end up chasing money for the sake of money, and that's the end goal, it's a bottomless pit of depression, unhappiness, and some of the wealthiest people uh, are the most depressed and unhappy. And mm -hmm. once you can sort of change your relationship to money in a more spiritual sense, um, you become a lot happier and money starts to flow and just come to you in a way. And I believe that makes people very successful, but you've got to realize at some point, mm -hmm. do not become a slave to this blind chasing of money. There was a saying that... Um, I remember from someone very wealthy back when I was a student and I was just getting advice and he mm -hmm. said, yeah, look, you can have like a bunch of cars, but you'll never drive them because you don't have time. Exactly. You can have a great house, but where is your home? 
You can have a lot of people around you, but who are your real friends? Who are your real family? This is the essence of what you should have. And money can actually rip apart all of that if you're not careful. No, 100%. And, and has, your, has your perspective on money uh, changed when you started versus where you reached? Of course, it, it changes you um, because you've now got something in your bank account that is like a huge amount and yeah. I, I didn't necessarily change overnight but people's perception of me changed overnight well he's a millionaire he can pay for this i can pay for this sort of like an entitlement like let's try to make some money from this guy um or you work with service providers or vendors right people like oh yeah this guy's wealthy let's let's rip him off uh, but me i've always mm -hmm. been a word that i call conjus which is like very stingy very <laughs> very uh, yes. very cheap right i still have a hard time with that i will shop for hours and hours on Amazon just to find something slightly better and cheaper. Um, I'm yeah. still like that today. Uh, and yeah. that's something that I think I've always had. And some people are just like that. Like, you know, I think Warren Buffett's known to be like that too and still has yes. his Omaha burger. Yeah. The level of happiness that I managed to reach that was because of money that I couldn't have achieved otherwise. And that was being able to go back to my parents and say, Hey, the home you've been breaking your back for, like my dad, who was a labor mechanic uh, working illegally most of the time, under the table to make some money, right? In cash. It's like, Hey, you don't have to do that anymore. I'm paying off the house, you know? And that was like a huge thing for them. The other thing was being able to uh, give to charitable uh, causes uh, has been mm -hmm. uh, really, really fulfilling. And these two things I think like have brought me some happiness that, you know, is, is uh, not comparable to other things. That's awesome. I actually heard uh, Ankur, uh, he's uh, one of my investors as well, founder of Teachable. And I heard like a beautiful thing he said. He, he said that one, one of the things about being successful is that I get to see my parents more often, right? We get to do <laughs> trips and, 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 and that, that was like beautiful. I like bookmarked yeah. that tweet. I was like, okay, this is so special. Um, yeah, but that's awesome. Let's go back into, into a lot more things, which I'm curious about. I know people who are listening to this would be curious about is that whenever uh, people built large companies, they had access to capital when they started, right? Uh, they either sold a company first or, you know, they, they had access to capital in some form or the other, right? How important is when you have made your first million or first 10 million, then is it easier for you to start thinking about something bigger or how did it impact you? How was your journey compared to that? Well, to start off with, in building a big company, it's always a struggle to raise capital. You're an underdog. No one knows who you are. It was a tremendous struggle for me to raise capital. I tried over and over again in the UK at the time where I was uh, born and trying to start a company. Then when I came to the US, I was just caught in awe by how optimistic people were here. And they were a lot more aggressive, willing to take bets on things. So I think being in the US at that time, at least, it was really helpful to get access to capital. We couldn't even raise $50,000 for half our company when we were in the UK, but we were able to raise money. And at that time, it was one of the largest seed rounds in Silicon Valley. Uh, it was 2011 and we raised a $2 million party round, party round because there were 30 different uh, plus investors involved. Gotcha. But it was very easy to raise that. And coming, this is when you asked me about the relationship to money, by the way, coming from an environment mm -hmm. where we were very poor, where um, mm -hmm. money was very hard to come by, but I was excited by generating it. Uh, I took the same route of venture capital. Let me go raise more than I need. And our company, you, you know, we ended up raising 25 million. Um, that last 
17 million we didn't need we were profitable but i was like take it take it like i we we have so much money already but take 17 million and um i perhaps ran the company very conservatively too so we were profitable quite quickly and having raised 25 million i realized if the company goes into a bad situation that 25 million first goes to the investors and what's left is distributed to everyone else so I want to make sure there's always more than 25 million in the bank. And I think this stays with everyone today. We don't want to go back to the trauma, to those childhood nightmares where I'm helpless, I'm dependent on everyone, I'm poor, money is controlling everything we do and is we didn't grow up with a silver spoon. And so I'm terrified of that still today of losing my money. And even when I was running my company, it's like, hey, I want to make sure we have at least that much money minimum in the bank. Wow. I also read that in the first seven years of your journey, you were looking at 400 million ARR yep. and you had about 250 employees all over the world. That's like 1.6 million per employee. That's insane. When you raise venture capital, there's a lot of pressure um, to use that capital to invest in growth and raise your next round. A lot of founders um, feel that pressure, right? Um, just curious, what, what's your take on profitability and growth? How do you balance that? And and, you know, like grow like that. <laughs> I mean, I asked this question every day to investment bankers when we were thinking about, should we go public? Should we stay independent? What should we do? Should we get acquired? And I had different answers from different people all the time. The, the real answer is, uh, it depends on your shareholders. If you're raising venture capital, your investors are investing in you with the expectation they could lose everything they've invested. But they are hoping that maybe one out of every 10 investments is far higher than a 10x. When I when I make VC investments, I underwrite them for 100x return. Like, can this generate 100x of what I'm putting in today based on my valuation entry point and the market size? But when you're taking venture money, and this is what I realized when I ran Vongo, right? My investors mm -hmm. want me to reach a billion dollar outcome. Mm -hmm. That is what would return the fund for them multiple times and would be a top company. And that's what they're hoping for. And that was the goal. Growth, growth, growth. Um, we were just very lucky that we were in a big market and we were able to get to profitability and we were able to balance profitability with growth. Now, there came a point where Euphoria had just started, okay? And you've seen the meltdown many years later where we were being pushed to hire more, pushed to spend more on marketing. And one of the, one of the things I kept hearing from bankers were like, hey, go hire more engineers. You know why? If Google acquires you, you'll get at least a million per engineer. And I'm like, but we're hiring more people and we're not moving as fast. And I'm hiring more people and people are getting away with things. So I want to keep things lean and I only want to hire out of pain. And that's why that metric revenue per employee was something we looked at. Because every time you add an employee, ouch, that revenue per employee metric goes down until they ramp up, right? Yes. Um, yeah. So we honestly got to a point where we didn't need to hire any more people. Um, and I wanted to make sure we were hiring out of pain. That's awesome. Incredible way to look at it, right? Um, as a founder, if you have to evaluate that, hey, like, uh, which VC uh, should I raise from or, or what kind of VC should we raise from, for? How do we do that, Matt? Well, you've got to have the luxury of being able to choose who you raise money from. Beggars can't be choosers, unfortunately, but you can also sign yeah. a deal with the devil in desperation and regret it dearly later on. Um, in this climate today, when things are tough, I really do advise focusing on uh, bootstrapping and profitability for as long as you can. 
and not be too dependent on VCs because they're not the most reliable right now. Many VCs are gun shy. Now, that question in the mm-hmm. lens of how I looked at it previously, uh, I wanted people that would be helpful around the cap table, people that would teach me something that I'd be able to learn from. So I, I would call every investor a strategic investor. I misuse the term. There's a strategic investor isn't how I refer to it, but I'd be like, we're only taking strategic investors. So people are like, well, Google's investing in you. AOL is investing in you. Is that what you mean by strategic? No, no, no. Someone who can actually help me. Right. And I just kept saying that over and over again, strategic investor, strategic investor. So when someone comes to me, I'm looking at them. I'm like, how can you be helpful to our company? Are you a client? I had clients invest, by the way, right? Gaming companies invested in us and their, or their CEOs did, right? Or are you just some dude who's a dentist who just happens to have a lot of money and wants to make a bet? You're not a strategic investor in that case. Can you make an introduction for me? How are you going to help me? If not now, later. I literally composed that 30 list of uh, those 30 investors based on some of these folks are from the industry and can teach me something. Some of these folks have, had prior exits, so they'll help me at that stage. Some of these guys are really good at raising funding, so they're going to help me there as well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's how we did it. And I think that was the best way to do it, to raise money from people who you think are going to be helpful. They come in all, all types of situations. They could be family offices, they could be corporate venture funds, or they could be an individual angel investor or, you know, a traditional venture capital investor. Uh, but I always think about how can they help me and uh, that partner specifically, not just the firm, but the partner. The partner mainly, to be frank. Got it. When you're choosing your seed investor, right? Like, how should you go about choosing the right partner? Because in most cases, when you're pitching a new investor, you barely know them. And you also see the best version of yeah. them because as you're pitching them, they're pitching you, right? How do you figure out you choose the right partner? If you're in a situation where now you're pitching for money, you're already behind the ball now. Ideally, you've spent time researching people, you've met them, you've managed to get introductions, or you've managed to send a cold email and meet them for coffee and just pick their brains, get advice. Ideally, you want to be talking to people for advice. And before you know it, you've got three to five friendly people who are actually interested in, in meeting you constantly, yes. meeting you every month, yeah. meeting you every quarter or whatever. Uh, ahead of the fundraise, when you really don't need the money or when you're not raising, but you meet them and you can be explicit and say, look, You're someone I would love to raise money from in the future, but I think it's really important that we get to know each other and I'd like your advice on what you think we should do to be fundraising ready. Good investors will say yes to that. And when you get to meet them and you get to hear their advice, how crazy it is or how really powerful it is, that's when you are are doing your job. You're you're building relationships and then you are avoiding that. I'm in a pitch. I've got 45 minutes to convince you and your partnership why we're a great choice. You're going to invest in us. You're going to be on our board and we're going to be stuck together for the next 10 years. Even if you've known them really well and things have gone really well, they're on their best behavior with you because they're interested in you. You need to go do reference checks, uh, even if you've known them for a little bit to see how they've been with other founders when things aren't going so well. Venture capital is also going to go through some change. I mean, we are talking about AI, um, a lot of software companies, SaaS companies are going to like get impacted with AI in a massive way. Uh, Do you think venture capital as an asset class will also get impacted in some way because startups basically will need lesser capital now um, in order to grow? And what's your opinion on AI impacting venture capital as an asset class? We can look at history and we can see that the average cost to start a company has decreased significantly over the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. And I think AI is just part of that trend. 
where you don't need a huge team of engineers to get something off the ground. You don't need to have copywriters. You could have AGI do a lot of that for you. So I think what's going to happen is there'll be a lot more pre-seed players, new entrants, and you're going to see the established players move up the value chain. Seed will mean something different. Mm -hmm. Series A will mean something different. And hopefully people don't need to raise as much capital, which therefore puts the dynamics in the founder's favor because of supply and demand. Uh, You know, like I would love to get into the last section. Uh, I really want to talk about outcomes as a founder. When a founder is building the company at an early stage, how should one be thinking about it as as you go, uh, you know, and raise your seed series A, series B, right? Like early stages of funding. Uh, it's really a numbers game and VCs are really good at this and founders are not and founders sign up for things they don't understand. But you've got to create a pro forma cap table or you've got to get a template of a pro forma cap table and model out here. Here we're starting this company today and here are the founders. And let's just say there's three founders, only 33% each, right? Mm-hmm. The numbers may be radically different. In most cases, maybe one founder has more than the other. And then you need to figure out, okay, we're going to be hiring employees. So we need ideally to create an option pool rather than just giving random bits of equity here and there. Let's create an option pool that's well thought out. And the math usually mm-hmm. is um, at, at the by the series A stage, uh, investors want to see at least a 10% option pool that is in place before the funding round closes. Okay. So, yeah. the, you know, you're looking at multiple uh, equity option pool refreshes potentially. You might be giving yep. up 10, 20% by the time you raise your Series A. But forget the Series A for a second. The next amount of capital you take in is going to be dilutive. But here's where the problem mm-hmm. happens. Most of the people investing early stage are investing in convertible notes or safe rounds. They're not investing yep. in pure equity. And so you end mm-hmm. up raising debt ultimately. And mm-hmm. it's very, very common for founders to just say, okay, we're doing a rolling close and we're just raising more and more convertible notes. With discounts, mm-hmm. with interest rates, all these things you need to factor in. But you have to pro forma model out how those convertible notes will convert at the next round. Mm-hmm. Don't just mm-hmm. keep saying, oh, I'm raising another million, I'm raising two million. Too many companies I have seen and also been involved in have a, a cap table that is unfundable because they've raised way too much debt at the worst terms possible. Okay, I've, I've, I've yeah. done recaps myself as a board member. I've, I've dealt with that, right? Um, then you model out Okay, the first priced round, how much are they going to get? And suddenly you start to see that 33% after option pool refreshes is, uh, is maybe 30%. And then suddenly it's yeah. 20% and then it's 10%. And you're thinking, damn, this is just series A. And the founders only yeah. own 50% between them. Okay, you know what though? Like maybe founders and employees own 50% by the series A, which is what people want to see, right? But that yeah. was dilutive. And wait a second. Um, I now have to exit the company and there's going to be more subsequent funding rounds. So let me model out what an exit looks like. And you look at the waterfall and you realize, oh crap, if we don't exit for at least X amount, I'm not making anything. Exactly. Yep. I'd love to just run deeper into when you hit that, when you did hit that scale, what went into making the decision that you should get acquired or versus you know, go for an IPO or what were the thoughts and how did you make that decision? Our VCs needed an exit, to be honest. And there was a lot of uh, push for running an, uh, you know, a process to uh, gain liquidity. And as a CEO, you have to support that initiative because you have to do what's best for the shareholders. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, 
you know, the exit was primarily driven by the need of one of our main VCs who needed to show a big return because they're raising a new fund. And this is a dynamic founders need to be cautiously aware of. We returned the fund and we were the biggest exit. So many of our investors have, you know, I mean, think you're coming in at a uh, $4 million valuation and the company exits at seven or 80 million. You do the math for the incubator uh, check. I mean, wow, their, their return was in the thousands of X, right? So uh, you've, you've got to consider uh, all of that. You know, um, the option of the IPO was there and we said we were going to do a dual track process, but we knew, we knew like an acquisition would be better. Uh, an IPO was scary because uh, we didn't think public market investors would be able to value what we're doing. We were wrong, by the way, because one of our competitors went public and their peak valuation was insane. Like, I don't know, like 30 billion or something, you know? Oh, wow. Yeah. What app, company app, is that? App, app Lovin. Apple open. Yeah. So yeah. the acquisition, which was all cash, was the safest thing to go with. Um, and that's why. And also uh, acquirers saw value in what we were doing. Um, yeah. I remember like talking to uh, other uh, mentors and investors. And as soon as they're all cash, they just say, don't tell me anything else. Take it. Take it. So most of the time, investors uh, uh, prefer just to get the all cash. 100%. But thank you so much for taking our time. Uh, it was amazing chatting with you. Likewise. I hope to see you again in person. I hope uh, our viewers uh, get some value from this. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate the time, Zane. Thank you. It was great to be on the show. Having me.